Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We're in this series called The Quest. I told you that it's really not just one quest, it's really a trilogy, that there are three different quests that will take place. The first quest was the quest for honor, Q4H. And what we said was that to live the life that we are intended to live by God, the life that God calls us to, it, it, it requires of us to live a life of courage. And I wrote courage up here in this corner. And I said that courage cannot happen. Courage only grows out of a life of integrity. And we talked about integrity and what that looks like. And we said that all created things are designed with integrity in them. I, I remember I passed out the bananas and we peeled bananas to ensure that what it advertises on the outside is in fact what is on the inside. And I did my little samurai deal with the, uh, actually it was more of a Braveheart thing, right? I had the, the claymore and I whacked open a watermelon. I'm told that that scared some of you. I'm sorry. It scared me too, if that's any consolation. Uh, I, I bent my sword at the same time, so that's not good. Um, but that that everything demonstrates integrity in the universe that's created. A banana is always a banana. A orangutan acts like an orangutan, but that's not necessarily the case when you come to the created human being. That because we have a sinful nature, we can at times become disintegrated and lack the integrity that we were created to have. And then we said that integrity grows out of humility. And we talked about that the fact that God is humble, that God came as a servant, that, that God set the standard and demonstrated for us what humility looks like and expects us to follow in his footsteps and to live a life of humility. And that there is a journey that we take beginning with humility that leads us into integrity where we arrive at courage and we are able to live the life that God intended for us to live. That was the first trilogy. Today... We start with the second quest, that is the quest for nobility. The quest for nobility, Q4N. Uh, nobility is an interesting word, isn't it? Uh, isn't it interesting how words can change? If you, if you mature at all, one of the things you realize about the English language is that you better adapt to the ever-changing English language and the way we use words. Uh, nobility, in its very beginning, nobility, I mean, here's, here's what I mean by that. Um, it used to be cool to say cool, right? And then it became uncool to use the word cool. And now I don't know whether it's cool or not to use the word cool, but I use cool. And then we had this word good, and then all of a sudden the kids came along, all the cool kids came along and said, no, we don't call it good anymore we call it bad and then everything that was good now we refer to as bad only now it's changed back and i'm not sure whether it's good or bad i don't know what to call something that's good call it bad or call it good confused i don't know then they really threw us a curve when we talked about fat f-a-t and that was a bad thing but then they started to refer to good things as fat p-h-a-t and then I got confused, is it fat or fat? I don't really know what it is. And then, and then they really get you going because it used to be that someone would come along and say, hey, are you up for that? Are you up for a game of tennis? Are you up for you know, coffee? Are you up for that? And then now all of a sudden all the cool kids don't say, are you up for that? They say, are you down with that? So now I don't know whether to be up with that or down with that or all around with that. I just kind of try to be with that somehow, some way. And so the words change all the time. You know, the words are changing. It's interesting to watch the etymology of the word nobility and to see how it gets defined over time. 
See, at the very beginning, nobility was a word that was used to describe someone born to a duke or a duchess or a queen or a king. If you were the daughter of the, du- of the duke, if you were the son of the king, then you were considered nobility. And it was, it, it was really more a description of the chance of your birth. And we came to understand that people of nobility, it was understood in the day that they were special. It was almost kind of like people thought that God had selected these people, that there was special blood that flowed through their veins. They had nobility in them. And so one of the things that was conferred upon people when you were nobility, as you were raised, it was expected that you would be taught that if you're a person of nobility, you are responsible not just for possessions, but that you are responsible for people. And then an interesting thing happened. If you're a student of history, you know that, that the nobles at times went through these stretches in these periods where they did not act noble. Kings and queens did not act like they had special royal blood flowing through their veins. They acted very uncommon and what you also know if you follow history is that some people that we would describe as uncommon acted very nobly they acted heroically you look through human history and you see nobles letting us down and you see some people who were not of nobility who lived at a high level that were heroic and in some cases saved a race or saved a people or saved a group of people and so you have this idea of nobility. What I want to say is, is that we're going to go on a quest and we're, we're, we're going to end with this word right here. Generosity. Now, that's a dangerous word to use in a setting where we collect offerings, Right? Because when I write the word, as a preacher, when I write the word generosity on the board, you automatically assume I'm going to talk to you about money. And you assume that I'm going to try to milk your wallet for all the money that's in it. And in fact, there's, that's the reason some people don't want to come to churches because they think all preachers are after their money. You can take your hand off your wallet because I'm not after your money this morning, okay? But, but the quest for nobility is going to lead us to a place where we live this life of generosity, what we would call a generative life. And, and the idea behind that is, is not so much that, that it's, about, it's about money, but it's about more than money. It's about bringing all of your great gifts and your great talents and your passions to bear on a world that desperately needs what you have to offer. And it really is summed up in this idea that you would love well. That when you live a generative life, you love well. And so the goal for us as we go through this quest is to arrive at a place where we love well. And so what we're going to learn is you really can't arrive at a place of generosity until you have arrived at a place we would call wholeness. Now, while I may have to talk a while to get you to a point of considering this idea of generosity, I don't have to talk very long to get you to understand your need for wholeness. We all have a need for wholeness. Um, You know, some of you grew up in environments that were not good environments. Some of you came out of environments of abuse. Some of you have come out of environments where there was not a lot of love. And and you 
you would say, Brett, I, I understand completely what it is to be on this quest and this search for wholeness. I get that. And so while you may not be completely down with the idea of generosity, you are on board with the idea of trying to find wholeness. Um, wholeness, the problem with wholeness is that sometimes people come to church looking for this wholeness, which is a good thing. That's where you're going to find it. And sometimes the church has let them down, sometimes because people are in the church and we just haven't done a very good job. Other times, though, they do not find wholeness because they came, they followed Jesus, they were all in, they were involved in all this stuff, but they never found wholeness because what they were expecting was some kind of miraculous split-second thing where they received wholeness and they did not understand that it doesn't, you know, no one sprinkles magic dust on you in here and makes you whole. That there is a journey to wholeness and sometimes it doesn't happen overnight. And so sometimes people get really bent out of shape with the church because they do not find the wholeness that they're looking for. They don't find it as quickly as they thought they might find it. What we're going to talk about today is the idea that wholeness grows out of this word, gratitude. Wholeness grows out of gratitude. Gratitude is an interesting word. It's, um, it's a place where healing can happen. It's, a, it's the beginning of the whole process whereby we arrive at this place called Generosity. And if you do not ever grapple with gratitude, you will never come into a place of wholeness. If you do not ever find in your life this place where you live a life of thankfulness, and you would say, well, Brett, it's not Thanksgiving yet. Why are we talking about gratitude? I think we do this word a great service by only talking about it at Thanksgiving. And what we're going to learn in this series is, is that this is a key word for us to lock in on, that we have to live lives of gratitude in order to arrive at the kind of person we want to become. It's interesting the word gratitude shares an etymology with another word that we use around here an awful lot. It is the word grace. I want to share with you a story from the Bible. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Really, really, this is one of my favorite stories, honestly. Uh, I, I, I love this story. I, I just, I love this story. Luke 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A man in that town who lived a sinful life learned, a, a woman in that town, I can read, I really can. A woman in that town who, who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her, with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. That's an interesting phrase because... 
Simon the Pharisee hasn't said anything yet. All he's done is think out loud or think to himself. But it must have been pretty loud because Jesus picks up on it. See, long before we had Hollywood, we had Jesus who understood that the best way to take an arrogant, hard-hearted person who didn't understand the error of their ways was to tell that person a story, put him in it, and eventually he would discover, hi-ho, he is the central character in the story. So that's what Jesus does. Verse 41, two people owned money, owed money to a certain money lender. So Jesus is going to tell this man a story. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. See, Simon did not even bother to honor Jesus with the basic common expressions of respect. When Jesus entered Simon's house, it would have been common courtesy. Simon would have done this for any of his friends. If they'd come into his house, there would have been someone, if not Simon himself, there would have been someone there who would have met the person at the door and made sure that that person's feet were washed. That happened as commonly as we shake hands. When we go into someone's house and we hug each other or we give kisses or we shake hands or whatever it is that we do, there's a greeting, there's this exchange. This is what happened in this time. They washed your feet. But Simon doesn't do that. It would have been common courtesy for Simon to have kissed Jesus on the cheek and to have embraced him, but he doesn't do that. And and it would have been common, an act of respect and courtesy if he had anointed Jesus' head with oil, but he really doesn't respect Jesus. He doesn't really think that it's an honor to have God in his house. He thinks that God should be honored to be in his house. So Jesus begins to draw contrast, and, 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 and it starts with this woman who is uninvited. Have you ever crashed a party? You ever thrown a party and had people crash it that you really didn't want to be there? She crashes this party and she begins to act in the most indignant of ways. She began to kiss the feet of Jesus. She's got no sense of what's appropriate. She's kissing Jesus' feet. She's wiping his She's weeping with, with tears that are so strong or so voluminous or whatever word you want to use there producing so much water that she's able to wet his feet with her tears and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair, which means, by the way, that she's had to let her hair down, which would have been scandalous in this time. There's, it's, it's a totally inappropriate means of behavior for the setting. And the context of the story and the wording of it seems to imply that this woman was most likely a prostitute. And the money that she had earned over a year's worth of sleeping with other men 
she pours out on Jesus. And the way she earned the money didn't have much of a legacy, but it was the destiny of it that mattered. And she broke that bottle of perfume and poured it on the feet of Jesus when Simon would not even anoint Jesus' head with oil. And then Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now there's beauty and there's power in Jesus' words. But they eventually take a hard turn and they don't really make any sense. See, I get the first part when he turns to Simon and says, you see what's happening here? You see, you, you think, Simon, it's an honor for me to be here. You don't understand it's an honor for you for me to be here. Simon, you think that you're good enough to receive God in your presence, but she knows she's not good enough to be in the presence of God. And so your responses to me are different because of the way you perceive yourselves. Our response to God is very dependent on how we see ourselves. And so what's happening here is that because this woman has so much that she needs to be forgiven of, so much of which she needs to be forgiven. That's the correct English, I think. She loves much. She lavishes this gift on Jesus. She acts inappropriately. She doesn't care. She's all about loving Jesus. Have you ever met somebody that was a total train wreck and then they met God? Those people will drive you nuts. Because they will talk about God anywhere, under any circumstance. They don't care. They don't know there's an inappropriate time to talk about God and what he's done for them. They just talk, 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 talk about God. They just talk about God all the time. You know, the guy that was on drugs strung out and he killed somebody and they sent him to prison and he found Jesus. And then all of a sudden he gets out of jail by some miracle of God and he cannot shut up about what God has done in his life. That guy just doesn't know when to not talk about it. He talks about it all the time. Talk, talk, talk. The woman who just couldn't get her life together and all of a sudden she gets it together and you cannot shut her up. And see, the problem is a lot of us didn't have a train wreck, right? We were just on the train and so when we met God, God came on the, pass, on the train as a passenger with us. It's not really a train wreck for us. It's more subtle than that for a lot of us. And see, Jesus is saying that because this woman was such a sinner, because this woman was so broken, and because she was so fragmented, and because she was so done with, because she had had to have so many things forgiven, she doesn't really know anything except to express great love. Jesus had wrecked her world, and she was ruined for the rest of her life. But then Jesus says this, But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And here's where it seems that Jesus is talking about capacity. I want you to understand this morning that gratitude 
creates the space for love. Have you ever wanted to to love more, to love bigger, to be able to love more profoundly? You ever wanted to experience love at a deeper level? I have this conversation, I've had this conversation with people before. That, you know, I hear things like, well, my father just doesn't love me. My mom just, she just doesn't, she just won't express love. And what you want to say to the person is, no, they do love you. But it's possible that what the world that they came out of, they don't, their thimble for love is so small and it's got so little in it. They, they're doing the best they can. They just don't know how or they're, they're or whatever they're offering for you just isn't enough for you. For some of you, your, your love well is really, really shallow. And because of that, you never feel loved. I watch this happen often. People make the most self-destructive, horrible decisions that, that bring calamity on themselves and the people around them. And then they cry out, nobody loves me. And I watch the people who love them, who are around them, who weep at the decisions that this person makes. And yet they never experience love. There is a difference between how much you are loved and how much love you experience. What gratitude does is it opens up your soul to experience love. What gratitude does is it, it opens up your soul to experience the love of God and it opens up your soul so that you can find wholeness so that you can eventually live the generative life, the life of generosity that we all really truly long to live, to be the kind of person that God created that, that we bring our best gifts to bear on life so that we bless those people around us. Love becomes the central theme of your story. Back to the words of Jesus in that part that doesn't make any sense. Verse 47, the second part. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Can you imagine Simon hearing that? Simon has spent his whole, he's a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. He, he's a priest. He, he lived his whole life obeying the law of the prophets he was one of the good kids. He didn't have any trouble out of Simon. He always obeyed the law. He had spent his whole life trying to get it right. Have you ever met somebody who was so religious that they, they spent their whole life trying to get it right? They did everything they were ever told. They, 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 they obeyed every command, every law. They spent their whole life trying to be good. But the problem is you can spend your whole life trying to be good and somehow think that you got good enough for God. You're never good enough. Because if you ever, ever actually get who God is, you know you're never good enough for God. Sometimes it's hard enough to earn the love of, of the other people in our lives, right? Much less try to earn the love of God. And here Jesus is saying, Simon, because you have loved so little. Simon, here's your problem. You've been way too good. You didn't sin enough. And you've got this little tiny shrunken heart because you just aren't very sinful. This woman, she sinned like crazy. She's a huge sinner. And the moment she embraced the forgiveness of God, she became a person who understood that because she'd been forgiven much, she needed to love much. 
Simon, I don't know what to do with you with that little tiny heart of yours. And it seems like what Jesus is saying is, here's the solution. Go out and sin like there's no tomorrow. (laughs) Use the Ten Commandments as your guide. Just take them one by one and go shatter them so that you can be sinful enough and you could be forgiven and then you will know what love is. Go sin like mad. Don't You've been waiting your whole life to come into a church where somebody told you to go sin like crazy, right? And you go rob a bank. Well, Brett said, but whoever loves much, you know, whoever has been forgiven loves, whoever's been forgiven little loves little. And so you go out and rob a bank, and they arrest you, and they say, why'd you rob a bank? And they say, well, Brett said if I sinned a lot, I could increase my love capacity. And they say, well, we're going to, Give you five to ten to figure out how to increase your love capacity. Or, or, don't leave yet. Or, what Jesus is saying is it's all about gratitude. It's all about gratitude. See, Simon, your self-perception is one of self-righteousness and you don't think that you need much forgiveness and because you have such a high view of yourself you have a low capacity for love the apostle paul described himself as the worst of all sinners he wasn't i know it's in the bible he wasn't he was wrong He felt like the worst of all sinners. Have you ever had a moment where you made a bad decision or maybe a series of bad decisions? It's usually not one, it's usually a series. And in the moment that it all comes down on you, you feel like the worst person in the world. You feel like the worst of all sinners. You're not. I think Hitler was probably a worse person than Paul, don't you? Now, in fairness to Paul, Hitler hadn't been invented yet when Paul was hanging around. So, you know, but there were worse people than Paul. In fact, Paul was living at a time when there were worse people than him. He lived at the time that the Caesars were alive. The Caesars were just evil. Nero was a lunatic. Nero set a whole city on fire and tried to blame somebody else for it. Nero was mad, crazy, loony, and evil all wrapped up in one. So when Paul thought... He was the worst of all sinners. He needed to just look toward Rome and say, okay, well, maybe I'm the second worst of all sinners because Caesar lives in Rome. See, Paul was not making a factual statement. Paul is making an essential statement about how he regarded himself in relationship to God. See, here's the strange thing. The more you try to hold on to how good you are, the less you will be able to get a hold of gratitude and the less you will be able to live a life of grace. And it's tricky because you were raised up in religion. You, you were raised up in a religion that tells you to be good. Your mom and dad used religion to get you to be good, right? Right? Religion has been used as a control mechanism in the church for years. Religion is the hammer that brings guilt and shame into the world. That's why a lot of people don't want anything to do with the church. 
But the reality is, is that Paul was never the worst of all sinners, but when he came to Christ, he saw himself in the light and beauty of the holiness of God, and the worst of sinners was the only way he could describe himself. And what you find in this passage is that Jesus looks at this woman, and he looks at Simon, and he says, who's going to love more? Who's, who's going to love more? The, the person who gets their $500 visa bill forgiven? Or the person who has their $5,000 visa bill forgiven. And and so when Jesus says, who's going to love more? Simon says, the one who's had the most forgiven. And he says, you're exactly right. See, the person who's been forgiven the most is the person who's going to spend the rest of their life loving the most. When a person enters into a relationship with Jesus, it's not a declaration of perfection. I I talk to people once in a while, and and when I'm talking to them about getting baptized, one of the things I hear them say is, well, I can't get baptized yet. I still have stuff in my life. No, that's when we need to baptize you while you still know you got stuff in your life because the moment you don't think you have stuff in your life, you can't be baptized because you've got it all wrong. See, baptism isn't, I used to be like you, but now I'm awesome. Baptism is not the awesome waters. If the waters of baptism are clean when you crawl into them, they are filthy when you crawl out of them, right? Because the Bible tells us that we leave all that stuff there, and we leave them with God. It's a beautiful promise that God gives us. But our difficulty is we were trained for conditional love, not for unconditional love. I want to illustrate that for you. Pretend with me about this conversation with this couple and the wife looks at the husband and she asks that impossible question. And the question is not, does this dress make me look fat? That's an entirely different question. Not that question because we can't answer that one right either. You should never ask us that, that, that we can't. There's no right way to answer that question. We just go, uh. The question is this. Honey, Do you love me? Yeah. Why do you love me? No good answer for that. And so this husband, in an effort, he wants to show his wife that he unconditionally loves her, so he says, no reason at all. And it sounds awesome in his brain. It works before it leaves his mouth. But he ruins the moment and she says, oh, so there's no reason to love me. You see how adjusting one little word just a little bit changes the essence and the intent of the entire sentence. And at that point, he may as well be standing in the middle of the freeway and getting hit by a bus because there's no way he's crawling out of this hole. So he tries to correct, no, honey, what I meant is that I don't love you for any reason. No, 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 that didn't sound right. And then she launches in, well, it's good to know that you can't find any reason to love me. And he realizes that he should have just given her the love she wanted to begin with, which was conditional love. Honey, I love you because your eyes are blue. I love you because of that dimple. I love you because of your blonde hair. I love you because of your intelligence. 
There's nothing unconditional about my love for you. See, that doesn't work either. It's the impossible question. We humans are so dysfunctional that we spend our life wanting to be loved unconditionally and we spend our life running from the one who offers us unconditional love. And the quest for nobility begins at gratitude where we understand that we are at the most sinful and desperate and broken of species, longing to be loved, so aware of our unlovability, so desperate to love and yet finding ourselves inadequate in that love. The movement of Jesus was a movement of love where the first condition of the human heart is to move us toward gratitude. And by the way, gratitude manifests itself in worship. You have a, your bulletin this morning has the number 10 on it. Do you see that? I want you to see that number 10. I'm going to take you to Luke chapter 17, a story just not far long after what happens we just read. But I want, I want this 10. This 10 is going to mean something to us this morning. Luke 17, verse 11 says this, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee, and he was going into a village. Ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. A Samaritan was an outcast. A Samaritan was not an Israelite, a Samaritan was not a Jew, and he knew it. And he knew he was unacceptable to God, that's what everybody told him. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Now I want you to notice that there are several nuances in this story that kind of match what we're talking about. These are men who knew that they had a problem. Okay, they've got leprosy. You know, most of the time, it is the obvious thing that drives us to Jesus. There's usually an obvious thing where we say, you know, I need to be healed of that. It's a relationship thing or it's a, you know, it's our dreams are not becoming a reality. And we come to God, we've messed up, we come to God. And we come to God because of our leprosy, because of what it appears to be is our big problem. The stuff that we can see on the outside that needs to be addressed. Verse 12 says, as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. I've heard this so many times before. People will say, well, Jesus is for the weak. And the truth is, Jesus isn't just for the weak. Jesus is for everyone who realizes they are weak because everyone is weak. 
You'll hear somebody say, well, Jesus is just a crutch. Yes, Jesus is a crutch. Here's the thing. Everybody's crippled. Everybody needs the crutch. And when they cried out, Jesus, have pity on us, it's because they knew they were lepers. See, the problem with Simon in the first story, he did not know he was a leper. He didn't know he needed God. It says, when he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And they went and they were cleansed. And see, this is so critical. Most of us want to be healed. We want wholeness. And what we say to God is, God, I'll follow you right after you heal me. And Jesus says, no, you, you need to go. And when you go, you will be healed. And as they went, they found healing. Some of you are here this morning, and you don't understand that God doesn't do all the stuff so that you can come to him because it is only in coming to him that he can do an amazing work in you. The healing that happened happens inside of us doesn't happen in an instant. It happens on a journey. It's not magic dust. The ten of them go, you know, the nine go show themselves to the priest. The reason Jesus said go show yourself to the priest was because they'd lost everything. When you had leprosy, you lost everything. You lost your job. You lost your family. I mean, you couldn't be around people. You lost your social circle. You lost your ability to worship. You lost your identity. You lost, you, you lost everything. It was horrible to have leprosy. And, and leprosy came to be what defined you. So if you were going to be freed of leprosy or cleansed or healed of leprosy, you had to have a priest declare you, redefine you clean. And so Jesus sends them to the priest to be redefined and declared clean so that they could receive back everything that they had lost. And as they're going, they are cleansed and one of them disobeys Jesus and goes back to worship him. Did you ever notice that the one who is commended in this story is the one who does not do what Jesus told him to do? He disobeyed Jesus. See, this is why legalism is a bad thing. This is my problem with legalism. Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest. He didn't say, and when you're done, I want you to come back and worship me because religion is all about rules. Religion is all about laws and commands and obligations. But the movement of Jesus is about love. And if you need a command to tell you to go back and thank God, you don't get it yet. If you need a command that tells you to go throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and ask him for life and for mercy, you don't get it yet. This one, this Samaritan, turns back, throws himself at the feet of Jesus and worships him. And Jesus asks the question, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? By the way, worship is the ultimate act of gratitude. It's where you most perfectly demonstrate your gratitude. Remember that when you sing. That is the place where you demonstrate your gratitude to God. But then Jesus says something that doesn't make any sense. He looks at this guy who's come back, who's already received healing for his leprosy. He's come back, he falls at the feet of Jesus, and he's worshiping, and Jesus says, rise and go, 
Your faith has made you well. And if I'm the leper, I'm saying, yeah, you already did that. You already healed me of my leprosy because you made me well. But what if there is a healing that only comes when we come back to God with gratitude? when we return to worship? What if there's a healing that's waiting for you, a place where you could come into wholeness that only happens when you understand what it means to come back in and to worship with gratitude? Here's what I know about you this morning. I don't care where you've been, I don't care what you've done. You're one of the ten. You're one of the ten. You might be here and you would say, you know, I don't believe in God. That's okay, God believes in you. You might be here and you say, well, I don't really love God. That's okay, God loves you. You're one of the ten because you're breathing. That air you're inhaling, that is a gift from God to you. You're one of the ten. Okay, you've received some form of a healing wholeness from God because you're one of the ten. You're breathing air this morning. Because God loves to do good to you even when you don't love the the good that God does to you. The question is not whether or not you are one of the ten. The question is whether you are the one who would come back to Jesus and would say, man, I don't care what the priest says about me. I don't care what anybody around me says about me. Jesus, I only care what you say about me. And right now, Everything else can wait because the one thing I need more than anything else is I need to fall at my feet and I need to worship you. I wonder this morning if you're desperate enough for grace this morning. Everything that is created, everything that has design, purpose when it functions within its design it's beautiful when there's something that has purpose and design and it operates within that design it's a beautiful thing what we don't understand is that our soul was never designed to live a life of unthankfulness to live a life that is not grateful we don't understand that our spirit was never intended to be a vessel of hatred and bitterness. And so we pour all kinds of things into our soul that are not good, and our soul becomes broken. So that when we come to God, we do not come to God like this. We come to God. come to God like this. And we come to God to have a conversation. And we stand there and we're embittered because all we feel is a painful silence. And we stand there in the darkness and we cry out, play. Play. And we expect magic to heal us. We expect a moment's confession to change things. 
when the Bible is very clear and it tells us that this is a journey that we must take that begins with gratitude. And if you're here this morning and you're broken, then you need to come to the one who understands how to fix you, who can change you and work in you and fix you and mold you from the inside out. You might be here this morning and you would say, Brett, I am so tired. I'm I'm tired of pretending to be perfect. I'm tired of pretending that my life is all put together. I'm just so tired. You know what you need to do? You need to return. You need to fall on your face at the feet of Jesus demonstrate the gratitude and worship that is rightfully his. I want to show you something that I know you've seen a lot of times. This is our logo. We didn't just pick that because it's a cool logo. We didn't just look at that and say, well, that's fat. We hired a firm to help us discover a logo that would fit us. They came in, they did studies, they talked to us, we, we drew pictures, we played with crayons, it was great. And they left after talking to us and they came back and they had five or six different boards, I can't remember how many, it might have been four. And I think they knew that we were going to want that one. I think the guy that was we were working with knew my heart well and he knew that was going to res- resonate with me, so he put that one at the last. So he shows us all these things and and, you know, we're looking at it, that's nice, that's nice, oh, that's nice. But then he flipped it down, and then I saw that. I saw that. And my heart resonated with that. And we unveiled this about a year and a half or better ago. I think it was the 8th of, Ju- of January 2012. And I explained it to you then, but we got a lot of new people since then, so I want to explain this to you. It's in lowercase. I love that. It's in lowercase. There are no capitals in cross lane because it demonstrates the humility that we're striving for at this church. We understand. I tell people all the time, this is a beautiful church. It's not beautiful because the preacher's beautiful. It's not beautiful because of him. It's beautiful. It's beautiful because we're all in it and we're broken. need this so I love the fact that it's all in lowercase and then I saw that it was all shattered and broken I'm like yeah that's us that's us I mean I used the phrase with him Jesus has wrecked my life and he said man I love that I saw him at leadership summit he said I tell people all the time how you talk about Jesus wrecking your life And then that two-word tagline, broken, whole, our mission statement is bringing people to Jesus. Four little words, bringing people to Jesus. And that tagline is a two-word summation. I didn't think we could sum it up any better than that, but broken, whole is really the two-word summation of our mission statement, bringing people to Jesus who are broken, bringing people who are broken and need wholeness to Jesus who makes them whole. So this morning, would you just recognize your brokenness and recognize that as you strive to become this person of great generosity in all phases of your life, it only flows through wholeness and it only begins 
with gratitude. Let's pray together. Father, we just simply worship you in this moment. With the weight of all your many blessings falling down on us, we can feel the weight. We know that you love us. And Father, in this moment, we are so grateful. We do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve your mercy. We are not that good, and we know it. Father, this morning we long to be a people who come to worship you with gratitude. We know that the only reason we have a place at the table is because you died on a cross to save us. We're only bold enough to pray to you because you told us it was okay that you love us. So this morning we cry out to you and we tell you how thankful we are that you have forgiven us. So in these moments, Father, as we sing, it's my prayer that we would let you know just how grateful and thankful we are. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.